everyone. Welcome to the AFC Podcast. My name is Victoria Fragnino. I'm here with my co-host, Jim Galizia. Hello, hello. Thank you guys for tuning in. Just a friendly reminder that you guys can tune in on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Uh, we're all over the place, man. And uh, today, we're going to have on our day player, our guest is Ryan Herzig. He's a filmmaker. He's an actor. He has a film that he brought along called Primal Therapy. We're going to show a clip from that. And we're going to talk to him and talk about his movie of choice, A Bronx Tale. Yeah, I actually have not had not seen Bronx Tale before this. I feel like as an Italian, that's a sin. I should have watched it. Um, and I also, I've taken, uh, Chaz Palminteri does a lot of acting classes in New York City. So I was fortunate to take one of his acting classes, which was a lot of fun. Boom, name drop. <laughs> of course. Yes, I've taken classes, Jasmine Palminteri. No, it's, it's just one class with him. Um, it was good, but I feel like maybe I should have watched A Bronx Tale before I took it. I've seen him in other things, but. No, uh, you don't want to do that. You want to act like he's, you know, not the guy who murders six people in that movie or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I've seen A Bronx Tale. It came out, you know, two years after I was born. Uh, and it is it's a great movie it's a classic i don't know if it was robert de niro's directorial debut i think he i think he wanted it to be i think it was mm -hmm. uh i have those factoids we'll spit them off a little bit later after we talk to ryan but i thought it was great i've seen it before but not as an adult weirdly enough i saw it when i was younger and i didn't really appreciate it mm -hmm. uh, and then i since then i've seen scenes of it because there's that one classic scene where all the bikers are in the bar and he says, now you can't leave. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just the most boss move that guy could have done, you know? <laughs> and it's just, it, it perfectly epitomizes Italian toughness. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, and then all those guys too. It, it's funny too, because in a real fight situation like that, where everybody's ready to just beat the crap out of each other, the bikers would have just been like, oh, okay, fuck this guy up. Like, they wouldn't have frozen like that. But, you know, got to make the movie. Of course. Uh, but without further ado, I want to hear from Ryan. I want to hear his thoughts on the movie and hear from him. So let's bring Ryan on. What was so great about her anyway? What? What was so great about her? You were constantly taking off time from work and bailing on your friends to be with her. You'd come home looking drained like some soul-sucking vampire had gotten to you. Fuck you. Is this supposed to make me feel better? I'm just saying. Before you met her, you had hopes. You wanted to do stuff with your life. And then you get with this girl and all of a sudden all you want to do is play housewife. Goals can change. When we were together, I had something that mattered to me more than myself. Would she have said the same thing? I can't believe you think this is useful. Maybe you're just not getting that I'm trying to help. Maybe you're just not getting what I'm going through. I didn't just get dumped, okay? She wasn't just some girl I was dating. She was my best friend, my safety net, my future. We had an entire lifetime worth of plans and promises. It's all gone now like it didn't even fucking matter. And you think I don't get that? I really don't fucking know. Do you remember Allison? From college? Yeah, from college. That girl was my life. She was everything to me. We were together every day. And then she dumped me out of nowhere. Remember that? Remember what else happened that week? My dad died. I came home the weekend before. My dad and I got into a big fight. Came back to school early that Sunday. 
Monday's heart exploded in his chest. Mom found them blue on the floor a few hours later. Wednesday, Allison dumped me for some fat fucking asshole she was cheating on me with for months. I had no idea. Thursday, I sat in my room all day convincing myself not to jump off a fucking bridge. So don't tell me I don't get it because I lost that fantasy future. But I also lost a real fucking person. And guess what? What? I didn't jump off that bridge. I beat the shit out of my pillow. I screamed in the woods until my fucking voice was gone. And I'm not proud to say it, but I cried a lot too. But then I stopped. I just don't work the same way. Fuck that, we're made up of our choices. Choose how you work. Choose how I work? Yeah, stop sitting and sulking in the dark all day and fucking Wait a decide. Second. Do you think that I'm choosing to live my life the way that I am right now? Well, I don't think you're choosing not to. Do you think I want to be miserable? You think I want to sit around in the dark all day? You think I want to think about her every fucking second? I'm unable to escape. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't clean up after myself or take a fucking shower. I can't work so my savings are gone. I've completely given up on my novel and on my life. Do you think that's all a choice? No, I'm not saying that's a choice. Then what the fuck are you saying? I wish I could be like you. Just punch a pillow and move on with my life, but I can't. I'm not you. Why do you think I always wanted to be your friend? You have the strength and tenacity and balls that I've never had. I never had any clue how to get. I would have jumped off that bridge. That's not a choice. Okay, we are here with Ryan Herzich. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for showing your clip from Primal Therapy. Uh, tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, so that was the first film where um, I actually like kind of made it. Um, I, I randomly was on this Facebook group and somebody made a post basically saying, I'd love to create a vehicle through which a like a small group of ambitious collaborators can get together and make content on a regular basis. Um, and that, like resonated me i'm like yes this is the perfect like vehicle to suck me in to motivate me and i met up with that person and he said we could really use a third person basically and let's start a collective like a production collective um very small knit group and that person that i ended up meeting with ended up being the co-writer and my co-star in primal therapy and we created we actually created something that was almost like an embryo, uh, a story, a filmmaker's club, where we created a constitution, like 58 pages. For, we didn't call it a constitution. We called it like bylaws through which the collective would work. And the moment we were done with that, we're like, okay, so what do we do now? And Gene Romano, my co-star, said, well, I have a script ready. So we read it, and it really barely needed any editing. Essentially what was in the film was the finished product. And we were able to kind of pump it out fast. We made it on the cheap. 
And it was just a really good, simple script that was dialogue based and didn't incorporate a lot of frills or complexities that might come with making most short films or, or feature length films. So we could really just have one that we bang out, you know, and it could give us like a nice reinforcing feeling. Um, so that was the story for Primal Therapy. We, we made it uh, at uh, very end of 2018 and we kind of started releasing it and rolling it out um, in different festivals up until last summer, this past summer. Cool, very cool. Do you have any idea, uh, how long did it take? I mean, it sounds like you guys were working on it for a little while. Uh, how long do you think it took to put it together from when you started writing to when you guys wrapped? Well, the script was already written. And that was sort of why I think Gene wanted to create the film, uh, the, the film collective so that basically he or we could make our own scripts. And he had it ready, I would say three months. Okay. That's pretty good. And then, maybe, and then, and then we edited it quickly, so another month. How did it? How's it doing on all the film festival circuits? Well, it got into almost all of them. The uh, and it was received pretty well. Um, we really got, and it was my idea to pitch it sort of as a mental health uh, film, because a lot of people want to focus on mental health right now. That's sort of not to say a trend, but that's sort of like a a focal point so i said let's do it and it ended up doing really well at the new york mental health film festival so much so that they invited us to like talk about the film on like a verizon's kind of like channel like where they do news and we filmed that downtown it was just us talking about the movie and talking about the festival so it had for for that moment it had like a nice kind of juice and legit feeling of like big legitimacy to it that we were being invited to talk about it on this you know they had a whole production team film it like in a newsroom mm -hmm. and we talked about the film we talked about the festival and it got a big reception there it was uh it was probably the most talked about film at that festival well that's nice when you can really like find uh your like audience for something like that and, and they click into it it's always gratifying when you make a project and you and you know that there's a group out there that definitely like this is for them this is this is going to connect with them so well um so you're uh tell us a little bit about the the filmmaking collective that you have do you guys have like a name like what's give us a little more about that yeah so that was actually one of the funny parts about creating the film collective is once we started submitting the film to festivals everyone was like well what's the name of this submitting entity and um so, so uh so we kind of like basically we were like oh like we kept putting it off putting it off putting it off because it's so hard to commit to a name because you want it to be like sexy or creative or on the not um so i said um Actually, you know what's funny? I actually have to check. We arrived at two, but I don't remember what we ended up using on the uh, like on the submitting name because the director and the third collective member or leader, I should say, uh, ended up submitting. So I'm actually like, I, now you're inspiring me. Like, I want to go look. It was kind of funny. It was like a funny, like kind of on the nose name, like homeopathic, homeopathic productions. There you go. Nice. Okay. And do you guys have more stuff coming down the pipeline or? Well, we were, but one of the, Gene, who's the co-star in the film, actually got kind of 
badly injured. So they, he had to like move back home and kind of deal with that. Um, so that, and, and, and he, he just started, you know, kind of being recovered right before the, so kind of unfortunately, an unfortunate series of events occurred where it kind of put a hold. Um, but that's when I was sort of starting to like get involved with Astoria Filmmakers Club, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always good to find people that are new that you can reach out to and be like, hey, I want to put something together. I want to film something. Obviously, we can't do that right now for obvious reasons with coronavirus and all that stuff. But that group is there and it's a lot of cool people that we can meet, socialize with, talk to. That's why we're doing this podcast. We want to meet a bunch of filmmakers and people to work with on cool projects. So. Yeah, ambition is our currency right now. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, so tell us a little bit, you, uh, when we were getting to know you uh, before we were setting this up, you said that you're um, an actor and a filmmaker. So how did you get into the whole acting thing? Was it something that you've always wanted to do or is it something you kind of fell into? Like what, what how did you get into that? Yeah, so that's a great question for me because I was I I worked for about four maybe a little over or under four years as a corporate real estate advisor, but I was always when I was in my dad owned comedy clubs, and was like a a, a stand up comedy show producer and he owned a comedy book and record store, and he's a teacher of of comedy appreciation. So, I subconsciously was always exposed to that world, and even in high school I worked at comedy clubs up until. Even while I was working as a corporate real estate advisor, I was like working at a comedy clubs, different ones, bartending, you know, helping set up the shows, everything. So it was something I sort of was always subconsciously dabbling my toe in entertainment. I I went to school for business, but I also created a minor of comedy. So about four years after starting being a corporate real estate advisor, I just like kind of abruptly quit after not long before that realizing that I just wanted to like I was seeing all this content and I wanted to make it I wanted to like be a part of it make it and so I just kind of dropped everything got headshots um my boss like almost empathetically understood he was like yeah you don't really you know well you can do this you don't really seem like you want to do it uh which was sort of a good affirmation it was the best way I could leave corporate real estate to kind of have them be like, you can do this, but I, I don't think you want to do this. So then I dropped everything. I just started, I was learning as I went. And then, you know, after just kind of, you know, when, you, when you're acting and submitting, obviously it's such a numbers game. It feels so kind of um, bleak that I was like, well, why don't I just figure out how to make it? So that's when I started going on, Facebook groups and just asking people, do you want to do stuff? Like, let's, let's get stuff done. Let's, let's, for lack of a better term, stick our feet in the water. Um, even if it means I, we have to pay for it. At least it's something under our belt and we're not waiting around while, while other people are, you know, making stuff and hiring the people they want to make to make it. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the most important things I think for anybody's career at this point is just you can't wait for someone to give you permission to do these things. You have to just go out and do it and make your own stuff. That's if you know yourself as an artist, then you know how to present yourself well and, you know, create your own content and, and do stuff that shows 
who you are as a creator and then you'll you'll be good to go yeah and ca casting yourself and just um creating as little roadblocks to making that like it was so great that gene had something ready to go once we because we went through the sweating process which who knows if it'll even be consequential to have spent all that time creating the constitution and i even said this is all good and great uh but once we're all done with this we got to just start moving we got to actually you know the action is so much important more important than the planning at this at this stage you know you can do all the planning for nothing to execute yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. well that's that's really awesome that you guys kind of you know you created it and you kind of hit the ground running with it that's really <laughs> admirable i know a lot of people that'll you know can just sit around and talk about the stuff that they want to do all the time but they don't ever actually go out and do it and it's awesome that you guys kind of jumped right in you know dove in head first and and created something and put it out there yeah yeah, and I felt it would be reinforcing, like, I needed them just as much as, as they needed me in the process to actually get this done. We all kind of played a crucial role, and we could have spent all the time waiting till we were ready, but there was no ready. The ready was just getting into it and, you know, getting our, uh, you know, getting our feet wet. You're ready when you have millions of dollars, and nobody's just going to get yeah. millions of dollars. Yeah. So it's better to just say, I have two thousand dollars and just how can we make it work with that um yeah, and even when you're even when you have millions of dollars people aren't ready to dole it out because it's more it's people are if anything more hesitant because there's more money on the line yeah mm -hmm. uh i remember a friend of mine basically uh wrote a script and he won a budget to make his film it's a short film uh he won all this money and he was like i don't know should i do it and i was like yes they're throwing money at you do it <laughs> uh it's it just the question of like can we do this because it's a lot of money it was like 40 grand uh to make this short film happen and he was at first for like one one second he was like i don't know should i do it and i'm like yeah they're giving you money of course you do it just do it worst thing that could happen is you spend all of their money so it was uh it was a fun experience and that film actually turned out really great so, um, so he did it and you were a part of it Yes, so I actually okay. shot that film. Uh, it's called Early Bird. Uh, it is, the trailer just recently came out, which is really cool. Um, it's a film set in the 70s about these two guys. One of them's a bank robber. One of them's kind of the muscle. And the bank robber messed up a bank job, and they lost all this money. And the muscle sent after him to find him and bring him back and explain, like, what happened. Uh, and then they kind of just go on this little journey together to find the money. I don't want to spoil the film, so, but, but it'll come out soon. Uh, I believe that he's now shopping it around. No, no, I'm, I'm excited to see it. Yeah. It's uh, a great I'll, premise. I'll send you the link to the trailer, at least, for now. Um, but yeah, I, I basically shot that. My, that's kind of how my uh, company started it, too. Me and a group of friends were like, I'm tired of just wanting to do these things. Let's just buy a camera and do it. And uh, we started just filming random fight scenes and things. And then our main guy, who is a fighter, he's like the muscle-bound freak among us, he had a heart attack at 30. And he, he's doing fine now, but it put a big wow. hold on all the film production stuff that we're doing. And then we, wow. we wound up kind of divulging into videography stuff and weddings. He even got behind the camera as well. And he's great now. He does editing and stuff too. Mm -hmm. But it just goes to show, when, when you start out and you're just like, I just want to do it, and then the industry naturally evolves around you and you find your place in it and 
Uh, it sounds like that's where you're at. You've found a place. You, you, you like acting. Is there anything in the future you think you want to try? Do you want to try directing or do you like producing? I'm, I'm a good producer. I, I, I get excited by acting. And I think an area that would be a good challenge for me to do more because I've, I've started writing, but not like, I write all my ideas down, but then the tough part for me becomes putting it onto like screenplay format. Because then I get stuck in formatting everything. I get stuck in the planning part, you know? That's, yeah. Writing is where I kind of get stuck. But producing, I'm good at because I'm really good at just, I have it teed up. Now, how do we get it from step one to step two to step three? Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, I called in a lot of favors. Uh, or I guess they might not be considered favors, but for primal therapy, I just... A, lo- a lot of things ended up working out, which helped out. You know, you don't see, you see the finished product, but you don't see all the things that like could have failed that might've affected whether the film got made or not, you know, but uh, that's what I was really good at. And kudos to Cyrus and Jean, who, you know, the collective members who really like also put a lot of muscle. Didn't, didn't, none of the hurdles came from us. It was all other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they were, they were just as ambitious just as creative in getting it from from uh, from script to screen. Very that's cool. really that's really important to have a group that believes in the project as much as you do, and to have people behind you that you know are going to get the job done and are going to put as much effort as you're going to put into it. Because I know that can steamroll a lot of projects when you have people who are just in it, who are in it for the wrong reasons, in it for themselves, in it for a paycheck, whatever. Um, and you know with film and with creating these kind of things it's so a lot of it is so emotional and it's you know your your baby your pet project whatever it is and if you don't have people putting 100 percent into it that could derail the whole thing so it's awesome that like your first project that you did you had such a tight-knit group that could really just yeah dive in and do it yeah in a way the ambition let's say we had ten thousand dollars like um your friend jim uh who just gave you ten thousand I don't think that would have helped as much as just like everyone being at 90 to 110% the whole way, you know? Um, Because the money was great, but we were able to solve a lot of things even without money, you know? Um, Trust me, there were moments where I thought about retreating and just walking away, but um, overall, it stayed kind of linear, the the interest and ambition. Yeah. Um, And what was funny is we moved so fast that I never even asked any questions while during the filming about the script, like about where the idea came from. I didn't get stuck in that. And then I found out like after we filmed it, that it was actually kind of autobiographical for Gene, at least the first part uh, or, or the breakup and the whole leading up to it, you know, was, was kind of autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of, so it was like nice to like kind of find out after the film that there was this whole exciting element that, I didn't even know about. Based on a true story. Yeah. We don't even put that, and, but it really is. I mean, it's not important to the, it's not really important whether it happened or not. It's just important that you see it and that you believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've talked about in the past too, where certain people write things for themselves and they have to stick to their guns because sometimes it's like, do we cast someone else to play this part? Yeah. And sometimes that's right. Sometimes people just aren't actors and they can't do it. But a lot of times these actors write roles for themselves, namely Rocky and namely uh, Chaz Palminteri from A Bronx Tale, which is the perfect segue into this movie. 
so tell us, why did you choose a Bronx Tale? What do you, you, what do you love about it? Yes, exactly. So the story, which I'm sure you guys are aware of, that basically Chaz Terry built this very short monologue of a real-life story about witnessing a murder on his stoop in the Bronx into this kind of long one-man show that ended up being like a play. And Robert De Niro ended up seeing it, and he wanted, he basically intercepted it and said, if you let me make this, I'll make it fucking right, you know? And so he, he, he bought it cheap at that time. And I think the, the story is that Chaz Palminteri went into a meeting, like with the studio, where they offered to buy the script, I believe for a million dollars. And they get it, they get full rights. And he, he basically gets no, he loses all ownership, but he gets the million dollars. And when they offered it to him, he kind of said, can, can I just go into the hallway and think about it for a minute or two? And again, this is anecdotal. And he comes back into the room and he goes, you know what, I'm gonna hang on to this. Uh, because I feel like, I, he didn't, I don't know if he said this, but I feel like if I, if I give this over to you, it either won't get made or it won't get made how I creatively envisioned it. Yeah. I think too, when they made him that offer, they told him that he wouldn't be playing the character of Sonny, it'd, it'd be somebody else. And I think in his mind, he was like, nah, this is, this is me, like this is my character. So there, there's that idea too of like, similar to how Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky and he wrote the character for himself, he knew himself. Uh, and similar to your friend, how he wrote this character and it's kind of about him, so it makes sense for him to play that character because he knows how he felt in those moments and he can get that best performance. So it's similar, it's very similar to all those situations kind of link up. And could you imagine anybody else having played that role? I mean, all the classic lines from him in that movie that, that I mean, I and a lot of people still quote today, now you can't leave. I mean, it's possible somebody else would have been just as quotable, but you don't know. I, I would have said De Niro, but De Niro's also in the movie, so. Exactly, and the first movie, first of two he ever directed, and maybe, it might have been, probably not, but it might have been the first movie made under Tribeca Productions, which is the, tri the production arm of Tribeca Film Festival and Jane Rosenthal and Robert De Niro. Mm -hmm. So why, why did you pick this movie for you personally? What, what about this movie appeals to you so much? Yeah, I think it's that uh, you see kind of, well, first of all, like, I'm, it's a very organic movie it doesn't have any i mean besides the guns and maybe you know the mobster aspect but that's not what really the movie is about the movie is about like the humanity behind these characters and just kind of figuring out who you feel more connected to um that's that's one of the main takeaways that i take away from it so i think what what makes it so good is that everyone's bad at at one point in that movie but everyone's also good at one point in that movie you know, it's kind of like The Sopranos. You know, there are a lot of bad people, but there are good moments. Um, and you, you sort of start to appreciate and like every character in that movie, all the main characters, and sort of not, like, whether he, not to give too much away, whether he should take the money, keep the money. You know, there's that scene where Robert De Niro, who plays the father, finds the cash that the kid, that his son has been getting through working with them, you know, helping out around the mob bar. And, and, and he goes, we're going to deliver this right back. And the wife goes, wait, we could use that money. You know, like, like that's realistic. 
So there's like a lot of realistic scenes that like make it not Hollywood and just very authentic. And I think that really pops with people. And that's why such a small budgeted movie is so quotable and so remembered. And it's, there aren't thrills, there aren't high effects, you know? There isn't like some big sexiness. It's all shot in a story on 30th Avenue between Steinway and uh, 43rd or 44th, I believe, essentially all of it. Yeah, I find that so funny. I was reading an article about Astoria and like famous films that were shot there. And the top one was A Bronx Tale. And they, the article literally said, you know, even though it's called A Bronx Tale, and many it was people shot don't even in know Astoria. That until recently. Uh, yeah. And, and the, again, it's like that's such a fun fact. But again, it's so inconsequential because this story can apply anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it just really like I watched that film over and over and over and I see different things that I didn't notice, little gestures. It's kind of like Goodfellas, which is also one of my favorite. Every time I watch both of those movies, I notice something new. Yeah. And I see a moment that just really connects. I do want to comment on the thing you said earlier, too, about it being Tribeca Productions' first film. It is, and it was in partnership with Savoy Pictures as well. It was both of their first films, and they did them in collaboration. So, What was the other company you mentioned? Savoy Pictures. Savoy, Savoy. Pictures. Not whose company was that? Uh, I don't know whose company that was, but De Niro's Tribeca Productions and Savoy Pictures. Let's find yeah. out. Uh, an American independent motion picture company in operation from 92 to 97. So it was only around for five years. Uh, yeah. They did A Bronx Tale, No Escape, Last of the Dogmen, and Serial Mom. It sounds like those are the only movies they did. Interesting. Good to, good to know. Yeah, and I, I mean... Oh, that's Kaufman. Key people, Victor Kaufman. Victor Kaufman? Any connection to Kaufman Astoria movie studios? I would imagine. Kaufman's kind of a name you can't have unless, unless you're yeah. connected, you know? Yeah, uh, and now, have, and now to, to bring circle it back around, Robert De Niro and Jane Rosenthal through Tribeca Productions, I believe, just bought the Steinway Piano Factory in Astoria, and are, and are the plan is to convert that into a movie studio in Astoria. Yeah, yeah. they're supposed to start <laughs> this summer is when they're supposed to start. I don't know if the whole COVID situation is going to put them behind schedule, but uh, yeah, I saw putting them behind schedule. That's, I don't, that's, I don't, I saw uh, construction, I, I took a, a socially distanced walk the other day past Kaufman and I saw construction happening on Kaufman's new studio. Um, they built a whole, new, a whole new soundstage right next to their original studios down there. So if they can still do construction, I have a feeling Robert De Niro's project will, will move forward and we'll have two wonderful studios in Astoria. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think it's perfect. I mean, it's sad to see the Steinway I guess not sad, but it was kind of a staple. And I did the tour many times. Um, and well, if the I, think they, I think they only purchased half of, I mean, I don't know how, how function, I think they only purchased about half of it, not the entirety. So oh, okay. there's still some remaining of the Steinway um, factory, but like half of their stuff is now going to be turned into a, to a movie studio. Yeah, I would, I mean, I did the tour of the factory five times and they actually assemble a Steinway piano in front of you. I mean, if you haven't done it, and it's still an option. Mm-hmm. It takes forever to get off the wait list, but it's great. It's, it's mm-hmm. such a cool, interesting thing that not a lot of people know about in Astoria. Yeah. Do it while you can, if you still can. I don't know if people probably can't do it right now. But. No, probably not. But maybe, maybe if there's some time in between 
whatever they're doing over there. Or I, don't, I don't know what they're going to do if they're giving up that operations. Who knows? But if it's still an option, look out for it. I don't think it would be. I, I'm pretty sure they started construction already, but because mm -hmm. like, I think they were slotted to start construction like in this time period, but basically now we're, you know, locked up inside. But who knows? I'm sure we'll get more info soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then another thing to add about uh, a Bronx cell is the acting is just superb. Yeah. Um, especially from the actor Lilo Brancato, I think is his name, uh, yep. who plays Caladro as a, as a, you know, teenager. The acting is just great. And the story behind how they found him, basically they found him on a beach. Just everything with that movie is just so like pure and organic and everything you want to be part of a film, like a true film. Well, you know, the funny thing is like, as we, you know, find out the story behind it, it sounds a little bit like what happened with, you in making your first project is everything just kind of fell into like the right pieces fell into place and things just kind of happened the right way you know so i can understand yeah. why well it does it does yeah. you know you found, that's very you know, but it, it sounds like it because it you know you you know you found the right group of people to really dive in and take the right jump you know you were all able to just kind of move forward together and you know Chaz Palminteri was able to, you know, turn this passion project into a film and he found, you know, the right person walked in and saw his performance that day, Robert De Niro, and that, yeah. you know, the rest is history with it, finding Lilo Brancato. It's, yeah. you know, it all kind of falls nicely and into it's place. it's based on a true story, you know, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, the writer ended up acting in it. So yeah, there, there is parallels. I mean, to even be distantly connected with that movie, is so sweet of you and so flattering. <laughs> well, we're just well, waiting Ryan, for Robert De Niro to watch this podcast and go, oh, wow, all these films are so great. Let's fund all of them and bring them <laughs> into our studio. Yeah, uh, right? Exactly. That's the intent. Yeah. One yeah. can hope. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he can sign a licensing deal with the Astoria Filmmakers Club to stream all of their content uh, 10 you blocks away. You heard it here first. There <laughs> it goes. All right. So we are back. Sorry for the technical difficulties, folks, but that will explain why Ryan is now inside instead of outside. Right. Uh, phones <laughs> die, batteries die, but the dream lives on. The podcast <laughs> must continue. Um, we, were, we were talking about how Robert De Niro should basically give us all his money towards the AFC, towards the Astoria Filmmakers Club, and just fund all of our projects, right? That's, that's what we're going with? Yeah, he should stop getting divorced and having heavy divorce settlements and really just figure out how to redirect that in like a just straight cash to us. I think, I think you should marry him as a plot to take half of his money and then bring it to the AFC. Yeah. I should, I should seduce him with primal therapy. Right. Tell him, tell him that, uh, you know, Victoria thought that it was so similar to Bronxdale. Mm -hmm. Get him in, get him in through the back door and then, you know, that's Whatever it. Then will be funded. Will be funded forever. It'll be great. Actually, they'll rename his movie studio to be the Astoria Filmmakers Club instead. Yeah. 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 yeah I'll be like, you know, we we have a great screening room out of Jim's bedroom. Yep. Um, you know, it, it it looks like a sound booth, you know, in Chelsea, but in a room <laughs> where we can get it for free. Well, thank you for your sacrifice. Wait, is that a, is that a uh, that poster is that that 
uh, Iron Giant. Is that is that what that is in the background? It is absolutely good eye. I was just throwing darts with that. <laughs> One hundred percent. Ryan, thank you so so much for joining us for sharing with us uh, Primal Therapy. We really appreciate you coming on and suggesting Bronx Tale for us to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me be a part of this. This is great what you're doing and really good for you. I think there, wherever this goes, there could be huge value in this because you're taking where you already have a captive audience and you're trying to convert that into something that's continuous, regular. And I'm sure you guys enjoy doing it. So at the very least, you're going to get enjoyment out of this. The very most, this takes you guys to the next step of your career, which you should be very proud of. Well, yeah. one, one can only hope. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you, Jim. Well, thank you to Ryan for joining us, for talking us, to us about his career in film, talking to us about the projects he has coming up and, and bringing uh, Primal Therapy to share with us today, and also for suggesting uh, our movie of the episode, A Bronx Tale. Yeah. So... A Bronx Tale, let's talk about it. A Bronx Tale is, like I said earlier, a movie that I've seen before, but never really appreciated. And now that I watched it, I just, it reminds me of all my Italian relatives I haven't seen in a long time. I know, every time they went into the bar and they had, you know, with the little espresso cups and, and all of that stuff, I was like, this. I feel like I'm at a big family reunion, is what I felt like. <laughs> There's always, I, I mean, at least when I was younger, there was always that one family member that had the pinky ring and you'd have to go over and he would kiss you on the forehead or something or on the cheek. Mm -hmm. Like the grown man kissing me on the cheek. It's very weird. Yes. Not something that happens, but it's Italian. It's just the macho Italian mafiosa type archetype. And it's not like anyone in my family is part of the mob or anything. You but don't know. <laughs> we're acting tough out here. I think it's just the attitude of being an Italian-American living in New York, you're just tough. That's mm -hmm. it. So these guys in this movie, they're tough. Yeah. <laughs> De Niro, too. It's, I love the different perspectives and how I can't even say the main kid's name. C. I, I can't pronounce it either. Just call him C. That's fine. <laughs> C. And C, how he's kind of playing back and forth with his father figure between his own father and between Sonny, this bad man who's basically kind of like the godfather of the Bronx, uh, he, he's seeing both of them as a father figure and they're both conflicting and it puts him in a bad spot too. And you can really see that he's a good person and he's trying to decide what life he wants to live as he's growing older. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a very interesting way to tell that story, show his like coming of age yeah, well, and I, I, what I really appreciated about it, because, um, you know, I've done a lot of research on mafia stuff for, for different projects and things. Um, and, you know, the thing about mafia leaders in their neighborhoods is they, you know, they're not evil, like no one is inherently an evil person. There's very few people who are actually just evil, horrible human beings. These people are doing what they think is right and probably going a little astray until they get way too far down the line in the things that they do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the way that the 
um, Italian neighborhoods looked at these mafia leaders is, you know, they're taking care of them. They took care of the neighborhood. They protected the neighborhood. They provided for a lot of people. And that's the way that C looked at Sonny and a lot of people in the neighborhood looked at Sonny. And, you know, the way that uh, Chaz Palminteri wrote the character, you know, it's, you can't really hate him. You know, you can't, you can't hate Sonny and you can't hate the father. They're both, you know, just trying, they're getting by in what they feel is their lot in life. Um, and whether they like it or not, this is their life. And uh, Robert De Niro Lorenzo, um, you know, he's, it's funny because I, I don't see Robert De Niro in Italian mafia films, like in that good guy, quote unquote, role that much. Um, but he's, he's always the one that everybody's afraid of. He's the guy doing all the dirty business. And like, right. I mean, but he's the Irishman now, whereas he's the guy just who's out there to kill everybody. Right. But in this film, he's you know, working man, you know, is is the hero that's the tough life that's you know that's worthwhile um but you can see you know how sunny appreciates that and sunny you know understands that but sunny's like this is my life and this is what i have to do i think um, funny too a lot of times when whenever lorenzo confronts him and goes to him and says hey that's my son leave my son alone sunny i think gets it he understands his perspective but he also is always around his guys, you know? So he can't like have a heart to heart and just let it go. He's gotta be tough. He's gotta be like the king in the castle. Yeah. So he can't just be like, oh, this bus driver's, you know, talking shit to me and coming to my face. And I'm just gonna take it because that's the right thing. I think on the inside, he knows he's maybe in the wrong for kind of, you know, taking in this kid and bringing him around, not, not even bringing him into the, you know, mafia type life that he's running. Yeah. But just having him around it, it can be bad for the kid. So I think he knows this, but he also is trying to act tough around his boys and not let like some bus driver come around, come along and put him in his place. You know, that's not a good yeah. boy. But he also, you know, he does treat C like he's his son. Like he does, like that's Sonny's boy. That's the way a lot of people refer to him in the neighborhood. Um, so I think, you know, it's just very interesting to watch how they both try and, you know, instill what they think is right into C. Cause like Sonny doesn't even, you know, really try and pull C into all the, the bad stuff that they're doing. You know, he's trying to protect him. He's telling him, don't hang out with those idiot friends of yours, stay in school, do the, do the right things. You know, he's, he's instilling good values into him, even though he may not he, I mean, he flat out says, do what I say, not, a, not what I do. He says that in the film. That's how my dad taught me how to drive. Do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Said that as he blew a stop sign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, always stop for the sign. He just went past it. Yeah. Um, I have a great driving record. <laughs> That's why you live in New York where you don't try. <laughs> right. The subway for good reason. Um, but something I else about the film that was fascinating and also heart-wrenching to watch was the the racial divide that is so yeah. instilled i think that's what i was missing having watched it younger i never like got that i was just like i totally didn't even register that stuff as a kid and what it all meant 
and you know i i grew up around people of color you know uh maybe in a more white neighborhood than some than new york for sure but i never thought of black people as different or anything so what well, all of a sudden when i see all these people coming at each other just because one's white and one's black as a kid i was like i don't i don't get it like why are they screaming at each other as i grew up obviously i got it <laughs> and now i live in new york uh but watching it and seeing it as an adult now and watching that movie and registering all these things it means a lot more mm-hmm. it was kind of crazy i thought it was pretty intense when the when his buddies all go throw Molotov cocktails through this window and then get lit up. And it's almost like, yeah, that's karma, you idiots. Like, but it's still not good. You I don't just. Want people dying because they're doing no. something good. Well, well, I just don't. I think something that I, I don't understand because I didn't grow up in a very racially um, divided area, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Yes, I grew up in a very white privileged area um, and we didn't have a lot of people of color um, in my school. Um, you know, the nearest city, they obviously had more, more people of color than my little suburban white, Richie Rich. I'm not rich, but a lot of people in my high school were. You're um, a real picture here. I have, it's great, right? Um, but, you know, and then I went to college, you know, in, you know, rural Pennsylvania, again, not that many people of color. It wasn't really till I came to New York that um, I made a lot of friends with, you know, I, I have a lot of people in my life now that are from everywhere and have a whole bunch of different backgrounds. Um, my area growing up was not very racially charged. My, my family had no problems with people of color. Um, so that wasn't instilled in me, you know, as a kid. So when we got to the point in the movie where the boys in the gang are just like pissed off that this group of black kids are driving by in a, just driving by in a car. Riding bikes. Riding bikes, whatever. They're just like, they're mad. And the whole time, like C, C is saying, you know, they're not bothering you. So why? And I, I couldn't, I can't fathom and I couldn't understand why those boys were feeling that way and doing the things that they were doing. And it was just, it was really hard to watch um, all of that go down. But I mean, it's accurate to what these people went through. Well, it's, I think the symbolism between it all, tying it all together is similar to when those bikers show up and Sonny is like, they're, they're doing all right. They're fine. And you know, like, even though they don't look the same, they don't dress the same. He's just like, give them a beer. It's fine. You know, just drink your beer and have a good day, whatever. And then they turn out to be assholes and they start throwing beer at the bartender. And that's when Sonny steps in and he's like, hey, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. <laughs> it shows the difference between Sonny as a person and these racist kids because they just see the difference they see the person dressed up different looking different than they are you know they're wearing suits they're all fresh and whatever and these guys are wearing cut up vests and they're they have like what was the like bike club like satan's bike club or some shit like it was really dark but you know he gave them the benefit of the doubt and said it doesn't matter how you look you can have drinks at our bar no problem 
your your money's green here. It doesn't matter. Once they were assholes is when he was like, all right, fuck these guys. The the kids, they're just like, ah, oh, they look different. Kick the shit out of them. And I think I mean, it shows yes. the difference between the two. Yes, I can I can definitely see that. But there also was no scene where people of color were coming into Sonny's bar. So you don't actually know how they would have reacted to that. Like, yes, Sonny did say to see who cares what what your girl is that you're going out with. It doesn't matter as long as you're happy. It's, you know, between you two. Um, and maybe Sonny didn't care, but who knows what the rest of those, the people that he ran with, the crew that he ran with actually felt yeah. about it. It's not like he, he had a bunch of black friends, you know? Uh, nope. <laughs> but that, that's the thing too. I'm curious um, if a person of color had walked in, if Sonny would have done anything or if he would have cared or if he would have given the person the benefit of the doubt. I know his father had certain feelings about it. Like when, uh, when he asked his dad, he asked Lorenzo, hey, like while he's shaving, he was like, what would you say if my friend was going to date a black girl? And he was like, I don't know. And it was just kind of like, like what year is this? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, and, it was it was the sixties. I mean, twenty twenty. Did that take take place in the sixties or was that yeah. in the nineties? It took place. No, it was in the sixties. It flat out had like nineteen sixty eight. Um, it, that came up on the screen. It said nineteen sixty eight. Um, but you know, uh, I thought that was interesting that the father, who's supposed to be kind of the moral compass and the the straight. And narrow kind of like do your job obey the law blah 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 you'll be fine was the one who was like well if you're gonna marry someone you should stick with your own kind like that's literally what he said mm -hmm. and but Sonny the one who you know breaks the law and and killed someone in the first yeah. <laughs> 10 minutes of the film you know was like it does matter who cares if you're happy you're happy um, I just I found that very interesting <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it goes to show, too, and I've always tried to say this about people, is that bad people can do good things, good people can do bad things, mm -hmm. and it's just, you know, just be nice to each other, be good. I'm surprised that, um, what was the budget for the film, and how much money did it make? So the budget for the film was only $10 million in 1993, that's still not that much money, um, it's it's not nothing to snuff at in nineteen ninety three. Today it probably would have been like forty million to fifty million dollars to make that movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was done pretty pretty cheap and it only brought in seventeen point three million in the box office, which is kind of crazy because it's such a classic. You would think it brought in a little bit more than that. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I need to look up like the reception that it had, you know, because I'm I'm kind of well, the Bronx Tale, a Bronx Tale premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 14th, 1993, and it released in the United States on September 29th, 1993. Mm -hmm. The film achieved limited commercial success, grossing over $17 million domestically. However, it fared much better with critics who praised the performances of the leads, launched Paul Terry's acting career, which also helped Robert De Niro gain acceptance as a director. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was pretty, like, well registered people loved it for whatever reason it just wasn't making money as to why who could know you know maybe it, it, was it one of the first gangster films 
De Niro ever did? I don't think so. No, oh no, 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 no. I don't know the timeline of all his gangster movies. There's so many. <laughs> he was in The Godfather, so that oh, was in right. the 70s. <laughs> yeah, so he'd been doing it for 20 years at this point. Yeah. But who knows why, maybe because it was so much stuff that was racially charged and maybe they marketed that at the time. And sometimes it turns people off. Who knows? I don't think so because, you know, there's been plenty of movies before that and after that that, that you know, have to deal with race and stuff um, that people that were, you know, successes and, and made more money. I'm just, su I'm surprised that it, you know, for how much it's revered now, you know, as, as uh, you know, especially in Italian American culture and like what it means to, to Italian Americans, like how much recognition that film gets. I'm just kind of surprised that it, it, it wasn't a bigger hit when it first came out. Like, yeah, it says here too that they made only $3.7 million in opening weekend, which is like ridiculous. Nowadays, like if any crappy Marvel movie comes out and it makes less than like $50 million, it's like bonkers. Like there's no, well, way. it has to be a ridiculous amount. And I'm not sure. I don't know the details um, about box office and like what, at what point do you consider it a flop or a hit, but isn't the goal, I don't know if necessarily with an opening weekend you want to try and make back what you spent on it. Like at what point do they, is that a, you know, a lost cause? Like when they don't make back what uh, you spent to make it. It's, it's, I mean, it, it difference. There's a difference between like certain movie types uh, mm -hmm. as to like how long they might be in theaters. Like you have big movies like last year uh, that Charlie's Angels reboot came out and it did terrible. It made no money. And it was partly due to some things that were going on like in the marketing world. And Elizabeth mm -hmm. Banks was, you know, saying a bunch of shit at the same time. And people weren't really on board with it. And it just didn't do well. I don't think that lasted in theaters for too long. It must have been in theaters for maybe a month. I don't remember hearing but anything about it. If the theaters just aren't bringing in the money, they're going to stop airing it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's it kind of depends, too. If they have nothing else going on, they might as well air it, you know? Mm -hmm. But they're going to they're gonna play the movies that bring in money. Still to this day, movie theaters do, you know, replays of certain movies. They'll, you know, do a Jurassic Park day and people can buy movie tickets to go to the movies and see the original Jurassic Park. Yeah. They, you know, certain theaters do stuff like that. I'd love to own a movie theater where I could just play whatever movies I want, whenever I want, <laughs> in addition to all the new movies coming out. That'd be cool. <laughs> well, what, well, what I, I, what I appreciate about a Bronx Tale is it started as a one-man show that Chaz Palminteri wrote and performed, and he actually had gotten an offer for someone to buy the script from him to turn it into a movie before Robert De Niro got it, and. Uh, they didn't want him to play Sonny. So he said, no, mm. very much like, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky that we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago. Um, and then Robert De Niro saw his one man show of it and was like, I need to direct this. And now it's not only a one man show that Chaz Palminteri still performs to this day. He, he'll do performances of it. It's uh, a cultural classic as a film. And it had a really successful run as a Broadway show and a Broadway tour. Wow, that's cool. 
So this all stemmed from one project that he was able to turn into multiple iterations and be successful with, which is kind of awesome. Yeah. Someone tell Robert De Niro about scar tissue and we'll get this ball rolling. Yes. No, my new play is, has to do with Italian-Americans. We got to call him on that one. <laughs> new play called. Just give us the title. With Dignity. With Dignity. Yeah. I dig it. Right? Um, I want to hear more about that later. Well, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm plugging myself now and you yes. can learn more about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about it. Let everyone know. Shout it from the rooftops. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives... A Bronx Tale, ninety-seven percent, which is pretty insane. Yeah. Uh, I don't know these these gangster movies like this. I like them, but and I know Martin Scorsese didn't have anything to do with this movie. But the Martin Scorsese like type of movie, this I feel like this fits into that. And I guess De Niro because of De Niro, it fits into it. I like these movies, but once I see one of them or like two of them, I'm like, all right. I get it. <laughs> They're all kind of similar. I, I don't know if I agree with that necessarily. Like For me, it's an opinion thing. It's just how fair. I... Yeah. Fair. Um, but I think that this movie is different because it wasn't necessarily about, like, the hierarchy of the mafia and, you know, the what they do to, to, to make money and them avoiding... Like, it's not about the mafia. It's about living in a community that is run by the mafia and how you survive in that, in that world. Do you choose to ignore them? And, you know, it's, it's this tightrope that Lorenzo and all the other members of the community have to, to walk a fine line of like respecting the mafia and what they do and staying out of their way without insulting them, but not trying to include yourself in what they do. Um, so I think it's, it's a really interesting and unique um, kind of window into living with these people and, and living in this kind of, in this neighborhood where the, the mob exists and the mob run things. Whereas, you know, movies like the Godfather and, and Goodfellas and stuff like that, they're, they have to do more with how the mafia itself runs and how people live within the mafia hierarchy. So th I like that this movie is more unique that way. Yeah, it's not necessarily about the people in the mafia, it's about the people living next door, literally living in the, you know, the building above the bar that they all operate out of. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love that. I've always, uh, the idea of a movie where it's like the B person, you know, where, let's say there's Iron Man. Who lives next door to the Iron Man's Avengers Tower? Mm. I want to know what that guy's going through because he's like, I live here. My insurance is really high and it's kind of crazy because aliens keep trying to blow up my neighbors. Bronx Tale was great. I think it was a really cool film. It was really interesting to see this kid grow up and try to choose which life he wanted. And I think in the end, he, he basically made the choice to choose the life that his father was kind of leading out, but he's still learning all the lessons that Sonny still taught him and kind of taken from both sides, which mm -hmm. is really good. Um, I loved the end when Robert De Niro, you know, said he never hated Sonny. He just, he hated that he made C grow up so fast. 
but yeah. you know he did you murder a guy in front of him so yes um <laughs> But then, uh, you know, he also saved his kid's life. So I think yeah. there's a... I don't understand. Now, how did, how did Sonny know that those kids were going to go do something stupid? Like, how did he... He pulled them out of the car. Why, why did he know? How did he know to do that? I don't think he knew specifically that they were about to go do something stupid. He might have heard whispers, like, literally his number two guy was named whispers um but he might have like heard of like what the kids did in the afternoon and like seen that they were all in a car they're like he kept the whole movie telling c to stay away from them they're bad news they're idiots he told c in the car like they're either going to end up in jail or dead um so after that whole you know and especially after he had that whole emotional exchange with c about like someone planted something on his car and C was the last one to have his car, you know. Um, and then C immediately goes off and he jumps in a car. He, like, sees emotional, whatever. So I, I have a feeling it probably wasn't that he knew specifically the boys were about to do something really stupid. Um, but he just doesn't want, didn't want C to be hanging around with them because they're just bad news. Yeah, I'm curious who... They never really explain it either. I, I think it, they just chalk it up to general mafia life. But they never really explain who tried to kill Sonny by putting something in his car that would explode and, you know, take them all out. Oh, it was, it was, um... Did they explain this? I just assumed it was the guy who killed him in the end. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that deserves a second watch. Some, someone, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen A Bronx Tale, watch it. And tell us if you find out who put the bomb in Sonny's car when uh, when C borrowed it at one time. If you mm-hmm. figure it out, you get a like button or something. I don't know. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll thumb up your comment. Uh, but we definitely want some feedback from people. We want people to watch these movies. We want people to comment. Uh, yeah. I think we should do a little back and forth with people. If people have thoughts on the movie, we want to hear it. Do some comments, guys. I love it. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to the AFC podcast. Uh, you can like, follow, subscribe. You can watch us on YouTube. You can uh, listen on your mobile device or whatever listening device you have on Apple uh, Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Yes, and thank you to our day player, Ryan Herzik, and thank you for bringing your clip for Primal Therapy and suggesting A Bronx Tale as our movie of discussion. I appreciate it. And I'm Jim. And I'm Victoria. We'll see you guys next time.